Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So much in the news this week we got to share with you. Peter, let's start with you. Okay, this one is too good to ignore a very astute beagle who is patrolling the uh, Toronto International Airport. Uh, he signaled he was a stiffer dog. The uh, Canada Border Services Agency, the personnel, they knew something was going on when he just plopped down in front of some guy's bag. And uh, they uh, opened the bag and found 5,000 live leeches. Wow. This story first reported by National Geographic. Everyone's sort of interested in, in exactly what happened here. And uh, some of the data is still confidential. They're not referring to the man as a smuggler. They're just calling him so far an alleged illegal leech importer. He's claiming that the leeches are for personal use and not for commerce. For personal use? What do you use leeches for? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. He had some cock and bull story about wanting to enrich his orchids somehow. But it turns out that the commerce of leeches, two particular types that do have a medical use, the import-export of them is highly regulated. But back to these 5,000 leeches, the Canadian services are sort of stuck with them. The American Natural History Museum, there's a person there who is interested in leeches, and he's agreed to take 1,000 of them. Someone else took 50 of them, but then they've got all the rest of these leeches looking for a new home. So they're looking for people to adopt leeches? I don't think they're looking for adopters. They're looking for perhaps scientists, right, but right. they've got a real problem on, on their hands. Now, So they opened up the container, and they just saw 5,000 leeches crawling around. Yeah, they open up the suitcase and see a few containers, and they're just packed with these guys. They're they're sort of worm-like. They're segmented. They move by sort of sucking on one part of their body and then moving the other part. They sort of inch along. They call it the sort of inching movement. And one side of the sucker is just for adhesion, and the other side is the part that has these sharp little teeth. And they go into the skin. Into the host skin. Into the host skin, like your skin. Right. Or the dog's skin. Did the and, dog get uh, hurt? No, the dog had no contact with the leeches. For okay. Time. He just sniffed and stayed there. Okay. And they uh, suck blood as their, as their food. And by report, the bite does not hurt. They stay on for about 20 minutes. And they secrete an anticoagulant called herudin, H-I-R-U-D-I-N, or herudin. And this keeps the blood flowing. So medical use, you know, it is FDA approved, believe it or not. A certain species or subspecies of leeches are used after reattaching severed fingers or limbs. What can happen is that after the microsurgical reattachment of the blood vessels, you can get pooling of blood because those reattachments are imperfect and that pooling can prevent the flow of the blood. So you get your medicinal leech and your, your leech team and they prepare the area so the leech only really goes in one spot and they put the leech there and they let the leech take a meal for like 20 minutes. And that relieves the blood from the area and lowers the pressure in that area. And then they come back again in another six or 12 hours with another leech. And that really helps the healing and the reattachment of the limb. So interesting. Where did this guy get all these leeches? Well, it's not being published. Like I said, there's a lot of facts that are missing, including they won't even give the name of the beagle. We don't even know the beagle's gender. There's a lot of secrecy. Hmm. So leeches, they're very interesting. There's many species of them all over the, all over the world. Uh, most of them live in fresh water. They're not dangerous. If one attaches to you, you don't got to freak out. You just pick it up and take it off. It's not going to hurt you. You don't have to burn it off like a 
tick or something like that. They are sort of slimy, though. They're sort of icky, aren't they? And one more point. There is a history to leeches. Leeches appear in, in literature. They used to be used in bloodletting and other sort of pseudo-medical uses, but they have found an actual medical use. So how did the dog detect the leeches? He's not a leech-detecting dog. Oh, I mean, what kind of detection good. dog is he? Yeah, that's really good. I wonder what element of leech... I mean, he wasn't specifically trained in leech smell, right? right. So, so, but something... That's a great question. Maybe there's some mini hot dogs around the leeches of <laughs> <at> the dog. <laughs> well, I'm very sad to report another horrible tragedy at a zoo. This is in North Carolina. A lion escapes and kills a 22-year-old employee who had worked at the zoo for less than two weeks. Mm. The Conservator Center in Burlington, North Carolina, said on Facebook that the lion, quote, somehow left a locked space and entered the space the humans were in and quickly killed one person. According to the Post, a husbandry team led by a professionally trained animal keeper was conducting a routine cleaning of the lion's enclosure. It's not clear how the lion escaped from the locked area. They always say that. Yeah. Oh, we don't know how the animal got out. I know. And of course, you know how this ends for the lion, right? He was shot and killed. Did they really? Yep. Yep. It's all so tragic. A young 22-year-old woman who worked there for about two weeks, her family told the outlet that she loved animals and worked several animal-related jobs before her position at the center. She, quote, really wanted to make a career of working with animals. They go on to say, quote, she was a beautiful young woman who had just started her career. There was a horrible accident, and we are mourning the statement said, but she died following her passion. Uh. And it should be no surprise to anyone that these tragedies happen all around the world on a recurring basis. Every time we talk about a news story like this, I say the same thing. You're dealing with a wild animal who should remain in the wild. It's cruel. It's inhumane that we keep any wild animal in captivity. And when they escape, they're going to act like wild animals. Around the middle of last year, and this is from the Washington Post, a jaguar at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans escaped from its enclosure during the night and went on a killing rampage, attacking other animals in the zoo trapped in their own habitats like alpacas and foxes and and an emu. No humans were injured. That's just lucky. And then you have the zoo officials trying to reassure the general public by saying, Although we can't say how the jaguar managed to escape and kill all these animals right on the zoo property. See, they never know how the animal escapes. But rest assured, their zoo is safe for you to visit. Ron Foreman, the president and chief executive of the zoo, says, The zoo's been here for 100 years. In the time period, we've had over 100 million visitors to the zoo. We've never had an incident like that before. So I think statistically, there's nothing to worry about the safety of coming to the zoo. What else can they say? But in fact, the New Orleans advocate said it indeed found five other instances in the zoo's history when an animal escaped, including another jaguar that got loose. He's a young male jaguar, said Joel Hamilton, the zoo's vice president and general curator. He was doing what jaguars do. Certainly his behavior wasn't out of the ordinary for that kind of an animal. You're keeping these wild animals, an apex predator, caged and confined. They go crazy, being enclosed in unnatural environment, but we need to make sure the zoo goers are entertained by watching these wild animals in cages. We want to make sure your kids learn what we humans do to these poor animals, lock them up so you can view them. In spring of 2017, a British zookeeper was mauled after being trapped in the Hammerton Park Zoo's tiger enclosure with at least one of the big cats. 
in 2016 at the Palm Beach Zoo. I don't know if you remember this, Peter, we did report this. A 38-year-old zookeeper, Stacy Conweiser, was killed by a tiger while preparing the night house. This is where the animals are cleaned and fed, then boarded overnight. And we can go on and on. And I guarantee you there'll be more zoo tragedies to report. These animals shouldn't be confined and exploited in the first place, period. It's just amazing to me that when tragedies occur and people and animals get hurt or killed, that we continue to act like, how could this have possibly have happened? We know, you know, this is inevitable. Okay, Lori. Well, hopefully this one is a little bit more optimistic and positive. This comes out of the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. They are reporting a first-of-its-kind research study aiming to treat bone cancer in dogs. Osteosarcoma is pretty common in dogs. There's more than 10,000 cases a year in the United States. Mm. Humans also get osteosarcoma, uh, especially children. There's about eight to 900 cases a year in the U.S. What uh, researchers did for a dog is they made a vaccine made out of the dog's own tumor. This research was led by Jeffrey Bryan, who's a professor of oncology there, and the dog received no chemotherapy and only immunotherapy after the surgery. Partnering with Elias Animal Health, they basically created a vaccine using the dog's own lymphocytes. They removed the tumor, created the vaccine by using the dog's tumor cells to stimulate anti-tumor lymphocytes. Then these lymphocytes were collected by apheresis, expanded outside of the body, and then created a transfusion back into the dog. So these activated cells then start attacking whatever they're supposed to attack, which is the tumor. And it had a fabulous effect on this dog and his tumor. They're very excited about this, not only to help dogs, but because of the probable ability to be able to use this technique in children, especially those with metastatic osteosarcoma. So this looks to be a mutually beneficial line of research for both animals and people. And Peter, you're going to wrap it up with some pet trends for the new year. Yes, I am. A real interesting survey comes from the Michelson Found Animals Foundation. By the way, it's an amazing foundation. I would encourage anyone who cares about animals to check it out. Anyway, they surveyed a thousand dog and cat owners. And you know, we like to be on top of these trends by going to the conventions and poking around and chatting with people. But here's what uh, Michelson's uh, report says. The three big areas they see as important pet trends for 2019 have to do with tech, pets and technology, uh, alternative therapies, and pets diet. So in technology, People are interested in improving the health and wellness of their pets, and many of them are giving tech a try using nutrition apps or veterinary telemedicine and even fitness trackers. Many people are interested in getting a tracking device, and of course, there's a lot of interest in pet monitoring cameras. In the world of alternative therapies, many pet guardians are now trying CBD oil or hemp products with their pets for a variety of reasons. Many pets are enjoying therapies like massage, physical therapy, chiropractic treatments, or even acupuncture. And even aromatherapy, reflexology, and naturopathy are entering the pet universe. And finally, the third trend noted by Michelson is that pets' diets are beginning to look more and more like our diets. People who eat healthy diets tend to give their pets healthy diets too. Pet parents who like to eat organic tend to feed their pets organic. And believe it or not, half of the people surveyed say they feed their pets better than themselves. 
Also, there's increasing use of vitamins and supplements, and more and more people are cooking meals for their pets. So tech, alternative treatments, and eating. Those are the three big trends identified for 2019. And Lori, you're going to like this too. There's a story of a dog and he was talking to Alexa and actually got a mobile masseuse to come to his house. Did you hear about that one? (laughs) Okay, more with animals today after the break. Welcome back, our good friend Eric Mills from Action for Animals Oakland. He's been following the issue of live animal markets for a long time. And uh, believe it or not, it's still going on in U.S. cities, especially in California. Of course, it's very bad in places like China. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Good to be back. What is meant by live markets or live animal markets? Oh, boy. They more aptly be called animal Auschwitz. They're just a nightmare. A little background. Back in mid-90s, about 1994, woman in San Francisco named Pat Briggs was working at the Wax Museum at Fisherman's Wharf, was really upset about crabs and lobsters being boiled alive. So she took the issue to the Animal Welfare Commission or in San Francisco under the Board of Supervisors. And we had a series of hearings, ended up with a lawsuit, which we lost. The uh, judge actually quoted scripture, that man has dominion over the beasts of the field and all that crap, to, for his verdict. But folks need to know that these live animal food markets, so-called, are found all over the state, mostly in the Asian communities and various Chinatowns in Los Angeles, Oakland, San Francisco, Sacramento, San Jose. I've visited them many times myself. Uh, Folks need to know that here in California, we import about 2 million non-native American bullfrogs for the markets, plus about 300,000 to 400,000 freshwater turtles, all taken from the wild. The frogs are commercially raised. They're not native to California. They're quite often bought from the markets illegally and dumped into the wild, where they spread disease, displace the natives, eat the natives. I have photos of American bullfrogs eating baby ducks and baby western pond turtles, an endangered species. The housing conditions are horrendous. They're kept stacked four and five deep, often with no food, no water, and routinely slaughtered, butchered, while fully conscious. It is a stuff of nightmares. So we've been going to the Fish and Game Commission, after we lost the lawsuit, since about 1995, trying to get them to stop the imports of these animals. Uh, They have the authority, they have the moral obligation, and it's all about money and racial politics. It makes me physically ill, almost. Finally, back in 2006, the commission, to their credit, voted twice unanimously to stop the import permits. Voila, problem solved. I thought we'd won the day. And then two weeks later, Sonki Maestrup, great name, was deputy director of the department at the time, and when the department refused to do their job, Mr. Mitrup, when challenged at a commission hearing, said, well, the director acts at the pleasure of the governor. So much for the democratic process. I spoke next, and I said, quite frankly, screw the governor and screw you guys. You're not doing your job. The animals are, are, are suffering accordingly. State laws forbid the sale of diseased and parasitized animals for human consumption. 
all of these animals are diseased and are parasitized. The San Francisco SBCA back in the mid-90s, and I've done several myself, paid for about 30 necropsies on the frogs and turtles, routinely found E. coli, salmonella, pastorella, all three of which are potentially fatal in human beings, plus giardia, blood parasites, one case of malaria. As I said in one of the news articles, I'd sooner eat a dead rat than one of these animals. And compounding the issue, and probably far more important than all the rest of it, is about 60% of the bullfrogs tested positive for the chytrid fungus, which has caused the extinction of more than 200 species of amphibians around the world in the last 25 years. This is insane. So the commission has received more than 3,000 letters in support of what we're trying to do from all the environmentalists and scientific types. Huey Johnson, former resources secretary of the state of California, wrote twice begging them to do the right thing. Nothing. And now the commission, in its wisdom, has decided to have a series of hearings starting sometime next month throughout the state and inviting all the so-called stakeholders That'll be the market owners, the importers, the aquaculturists, the pet trade, the animal crazies like me. It's another tremendous waste of time. Even if they come up with a five to nothing proposal that this be stopped, it's not going to happen because of all the politics involved. I don't know what it takes. Hmm. Maybe a major boycott of Chinatowns throughout the state. We understand money, even though we don't understand morality very well in this state. So... Let's do what works. And there's so many conflicts of interest. So evidently, former Governor Jerry Brown, who uh, is quite an environmental advocate, he was not willing to take this up. And now Gavin Newsom is governor. Uh, Has he shown any interest in this? Don't know. When this issue appeared before the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco back in the mid-90s, I met with Gavin and everybody else. Interestingly, the first uh, supervisor to agree to meet with me was none other than... uh, Senator uh, Leland Yee, now in jail yeah, yeah. For, for gun running and God knows what else. But he pointed out at the time that, that he was uh, had a Ph.D. in child psychology from UC Berkeley. I said, okay, Professor Lee says, oh, call me Leland. Okay, Leland. Uh, then we are on the same page. I'm trying to speak for the voiceless as you are with the children. And then two weeks later, he was playing the race card in the Asian Week newspaper saying we're attacking Chinese culture. After the commission had this Two votes. They had a special hearing, which the merchants in San Francisco called for and got it. If the positions have been reversed, you can bet I would never have gotten another hearing. And within 10 minutes, three legislators showed up to protest. I've been going to these commission meetings at the time for about 20 years. I had never, ever seen a legislator there for anything. And it was Fiona Ma from San Francisco, Assemblywoman, Senator Leland Yee, and Congressman now Congressman Ted Lieu. They all played the race card. They also bust in about 125 elderly Asians who spoke no English, did not know the issue, just to pack the room. It was really ugly. And when Mr. Lou got through speaking, Dan Richards, bless his heart, who was on the phone, this is the commissioner who got railroaded for that mountain lion hunt in Idaho a few years ago, was treated very unfairly, one of the best commissioners we've ever had. He was on the phone, and when Ted Lou got through speaking, Dan Richards times in and says, Sir, that's the most preposterous poppycock I've ever heard in my life. Jesus H. Christ. That's a quote. Mm. I about fell off my chair. But we still lost. Mm. And here we are again, going through these stupid hearings, a waste of time and effort to show good faith. It's a d- delaying tactic. They need to do better. So I'm hoping folks will contact the uh, department. Chuck Bonham is still director of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. 1416 9th Street in Sacramento, and raise hell. 
the animals deserve better than this and the environment and the public health. It's, it's just a no-brainer, quite frankly. So especially for California residents, they should uh, contact the department directly. What's the best way to do that? Yeah. The director's name is Chuck Bonham, B-O-N-H-A-M. Nice guy. And he's resources building, 1416 9th Street, Sacramento, 95814. And the commission, Fish and Game Commission is in the same building. And there are major conflicts of interest to the governor, at, who's everybody that can call is acting, appoints the director of the Fish and Wildlife Department, appoints all five commissioners, appoints the uh, resources secretary. So it's incestuous, and it's really stacked against the animals. And the department and commission's job is to protect the wildlife of California. They are not doing it, and they need to have their feet held to the fire. Eric Mills, thank you very much for telling us about this incredible ongoing situation. Speak to you later. Thank you, Peter. More with animals today after this break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. When Dolphin Aris opened a few years ago in Arizona, this is a dolphin attraction owned by a Mexican company, Ventura Entertainment. We knew, and listeners of this show knew, it would not be a benefit to the dolphins. And yet, despite a petition with more than 150,000 signatures against its opening, it has been in business, and in the past approximately 15 months, three dolphins have died. The most recent one was named Chloe, and following her death... General manager stated, This is an extremely sad day for our team at Dolphinaris, Arizona. I'm pleased to welcome Naomi Rose to the show. She's marine mammal scientist at Animal Welfare Institute. Welcome, Naomi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, what is Dolphinaris, Arizona? Just so listeners can understand what we're talking about. So, this is a what we call a dolphinarium. It is a facility that simply exhibits these dolphins for swim with the dolphin encounters. It is not a zoo. Um, It it has a few other attractions apparently built around it to attract tourists, but it's fundamentally a swim with program. And it was built brand new in 2016. It's um, out in the middle of the Arizona desert. And it is basically a large swimming pool um, with several dolphins in it. So three dolphins have recently died there. What did they die from, and uh, is this surprising to you or expected? No, it is definitely not expected. The mortality rate for this facility, given it's brand new, so it should be state-of-the-art, um, and that's what they claimed it was. And given that none of these animals were old, they were all prime-of-life animals, it's disastrous for Dolphinaris for them to have lost three of their dolphins in such a short period of time. Not normal at all. Um, what they died of is actually, you know, we have to take the word of the facility uh, because autopsy or ne- what are known as necropsy reports for animals 
are not available to the public. So we just have to take their word that they died of infections or muscle diseases or whatever they told the media at the time the animals died. So um, what I would very much like is to see these necropsy reports, the detailed examination um, when the animals died. And the reason is because we had some serious concern about this habitat. <laughs> Dolphins don't belong in the desert. And there are pathogens, uh, fungal uh, agents, airborne spores, if you will, that might be a problem for these animals. And uh, because, of course, they don't actually, they're never found in the desert. And there's a lot of dust in the air, and there are things that could uh, harm these animals because they're not generally exposed to them. But we wouldn't know because those detailed medical records are not publicly available. There's a complete lack of transparency here. So it's not like a third-party neutral veterinarian who's experienced in performing necropsies comes in and offers a report. That is correct. It is done by the facility itself. The government agency that's responsible for oversight of these facilities, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service that implements the Animal Welfare Act in the United States, is pretty much defers to the facility vet. So if the facility vet says this is what the animal died of, a fungal infection or a muscle disease or some other infection, pneumonia, then, you know, APHIS, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, just accepts that. Yeah. And they very rarely actually ask to see the necropsy reports themselves, although they have the authority to do that. And when we ask them, this is an unusual circumstance, as I pointed out, three dolphins in such a short period of time. If we as citizens went to them and asked them to look at the necropsy reports and medical records in detail, because, again, they have the authority to do that, my guess is they would say, oh, well, there's nothing unusual here. We wouldn't do this unless there was something unusual and we don't see anything unusual. Mm. And, you know, we could repeat until the cows come home that, oh, well, three dolphins in such a short period of time is unusual, especially when they were prime-of-life animals and not old. And there was really no reason why they should have died. The agency isn't terribly receptive to that sort of thing. I have to tell you that when I first heard about this facility being proposed, I was hopeful that it would never get built due to public opposition, and yet it was built. And evidently, yeah. it's, it's attracting paying customers. So... uh what are the problems uh, with uh, this facility or ones like it? You, you've uh, told us about the problem of being in the desert, but what are the general problems with a swim with dolphin tanks like this? Well, generally speaking, captivity is not the best place for a wide-ranging marine predator like a dolphin. They are social, they're intelligent. You put them in a small concrete box, which is what this tank is, and they suffer for it. They they cannot thrive in captivity. That's what I always say. And, you know, some of them can cope, but coping is not terribly appropriate. It's not very humane, in my opinion, to force an intelligent social animal to cope. But some of them don't cope. The three that died obviously did not cope. And people are led to believe by the, the public display industry that you really want to swim with a dolphin, don't you? You know, it's a bucket list item for some people. But I assure you, the dolphin doesn't want to swim with you as much as you want to swim with him or her. You know, this is not a reciprocal arrangement. These dolphins are in a box for your entertainment. And it isn't normal for dolphins to have a parade of strangers go through their lives. They live in stable 
uh, populations of as few as 150 to 200 animals. That's perfectly normal. Think of it like a village. Or they could be in a town or even a city of thousands of animals. But generally speaking, bottlenose dolphins live in groups that aren't much more than 1,000 animals and are usually more like 200 to 300 and as few as 100 to 150. And they don't necessarily see every dolphin every day, but that's a small community. That's a small group. So when you have a constant parade of strangers, swimmers, tourists, who are complete strangers to these animals, day in and day out, parading through their lives, that's stressful for them socially. And yet some of these tourists who have these encounters, they go on and they say it was like a life-changing experience. It was a Ah, meaningful experience. So what happens? but, But a lot of these people, more than you know, come away from these encounters going, well, that wasn't what I expected. Mm. You know, they expected this magical moment, and instead what they got was a dolphin going through the motions, a dolphin doing what it was told for a bit of fish, and there was no connection at all. And they're quite surprised by that. There are several studies out there showing that people who go to these programs are a bit disappointed. And so, you know, what drives them to do it in the first place is this expectation of a magical moment, and what they get is a dolphin doing its job, because that's what it is. It's a job for this dolphin, and it's not a job it chose. It's basically been forced into this situation. And a lot of them do what they're told because they have a relationship with their trainer and also because they're getting fed, but they really actually treat the people in the program like objects. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're being told to interact with this stick or this, you know, float. You know, yes, it's a person, and yes, you know, the person is doing and saying things while they're interacting with it, but their relationship is with their trainer or with the other dolphins in the tank. These strangers that parade through their lives, they have no relationship with them. And some people actually notice that. Thanks for explaining that. I've read about the risk of sunburn to dolphins in uh, facilities oh, like gosh, this. Is yeah. that real? And also, do humans, can humans pass along pathogens to the dolphins? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple points I'd like to make about the health situation. Yes, there are pathogens that are zoonotic, which means that they can pass between humans and non-humans. Right? They, they, can, they can give each other diseases both ways. It goes, it's a two-way street. So there, there's a problem with these people, these strangers, these tourists who go into the water. They, they don't necessarily even may have them take a shower. And certainly, you know, this is the Arizona sun, so they might be wearing sunscreen. Sunscreen's actually a problem for these animals if it gets into the water and hangs around. I don't know what the filtration system is like at Dolphinaris, so, you know, that can be a problem right there. In terms of the sunburn, this, again, is a very shallow tank. It's not much more than 10 feet deep, and it's in the Arizona desert, so the sun is quite harsh, as, as you know, people who live in Arizona know. And in the wild, certainly dolphins live in the tropics. There are many places they live in where there's a relentless sun overhead. And, you know, there's no shade on the ocean, but they dive. This is how they avoid sunburn, overexposure to UV light. It's not just burning their skin. It's also harming their eyes. And they do, they do not get these problems, generally speaking, in the wild, even when they live in these areas, because they can dive to escape that UV radiation. Dolphins spend, as we know, those of us who love these animals and spend any time with them in the wild, most of their time below the surface. And not just below the surface, but like way more than 10 feet below the surface. They can dive to 1,000 feet, all right? They certainly regularly dive well below 30 feet 
when the sun is the UV radiation starts to get filtered out by the water, just the water column. I mean, anybody who snorkels or dives knows what I'm talking about. In this tank, in the Arizona desert, the deepest they can go is 10 feet, and that is not deep enough to avoid the UV radiation. Also, the tank is painted a light blue color, which is highly reflective. And so they get exposed to UV radiation at a rate that is far higher than they're adapted to handle. And they end up getting not just skin problems, but eye problems. Aside from simply not buying a ticket and not patronizing them, what do you think dolphin lovers in Arizona and around the world can do to get places like this to close down? Well, we're already sort of over the, I think we're past the tipping point on this. Yes, the Arizona facility, Dolphin Airs, got built. And I agree with you. I was very surprised that the protest didn't stop it. But my understanding is it isn't doing that great in terms of business because I think post-Blackfish, post-The-Cove, these documentaries about you know what these dolphins and whales go through when they're in captivity, these documentaries have affected the way people think about this situation. You know, There's been books written, uh, Death at SeaWorld by David Kirby and Beneath the Surface by John Hargrove. These, these um, sort of popular culture um, outreach to the to the public has shifted the way people think about this. And so even though we we had this facility be built post-Blackfish, you know, and we're like, oh, how did that happen? It Again, I'm I'm not sure it's doing that well. And so I think that people just have to keep talking to their neighbors. They have to keep thinking about this, writing letters to the editor, writing to the facilities when they exist in their neighborhoods and say, look, you know, I'm not happy about this being in my backyard. And, and basically just talk to people, make it a, a topic of conversation, social media. Wow. Make it, make it one of your topics of conversation in social media. And it, it'll ramify. People will become more aware. And I already think the paradigm is shifting, but it'll shift even more. Naomi Rose with Animal Welfare Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week, we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals, visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That website again is aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. Peter, it's International Polar Bear Day, which is February 27th. I didn't know there was such a thing. Yep. And in honor of International Polar Bear Day, we're going to learn some facts, and I'm going to give you a quiz. Okay. Didn't Ready? expect that. I know. Pop quiz. You like these. I do like these. Polar bears live at the periphery of the northern polar ice cap in the Arctic Circle. It's one of the coldest places on Earth. True or false? Polar bears are also found at the South Pole and the surrounding Antarctic region. Oh, I think that's false. That is false. Okay. What, what animals found there at uh, the South Pole? Penguins? That's right. Mm. So the polar bear's population is on the decline, and they are considered a threatened species. True or false? Hunting is the biggest threat to polar bears. 
Oh, I'm going to say false. It is false. You know, so unlike some of the other at-risk mammals, such as the tigers and rhinos, hunting is not the biggest threat to the polar bears right now. Now, they used to be heavily hunted from the 1600s right through to the mid-1970s, but then strict regulations and quotas were agreed internationally to protect the survival of the species. Now, having said that, Peter, they're still being hunted and poached for their meat and fur. And in the areas where polar bears are found, like Alaska, Canada, Russia, and Greenland, and Norway, each of these countries either banned hunting or established rules for how many polar bears could be hunted within its own boundaries. Mm -hmm. I find it odd that the polar bears are threatened species, and yet they're still allowing some hunting of them. Well, you may find it odd, but nothing surprises me. Well, yeah, that's true. So they're still being hunted and poached, but not as much as they used to be. So in addition to the poaching, what is said to be the biggest threat to polar bears now? Is, is climate change. That's right. And oil and gas exploration as well. Oh, yeah. Global warming is adversely affecting the polar bears by causing the rapid melting away of Arctic ice sheets. And they are their floating homes and hunting grounds. Studies show polar bear litters are also decreasing in size because of sea ice decline. Many scientists believe polar bears could be gone for most of their current range within 100 years. I'm not even that optimistic. Today, there are an estimated 20,000 to 25,000 polar bears living worldwide. So, Peter, around the age of four or five, the female polar bear can start having babies. They usually have only about two cubs and they have these babies in a cave they've dug in a large snowdrift. They stay there over winter and come out in spring with the babies. When first born, how much would you guess the polar bear cubs weigh? Mm. A little more than a pound, seven or eight pounds, like size of a human baby, I guess, or 50 pounds. Oh, how about seven or eight pounds? False. False. A little more than a pound. Oh, they're little. Which is about the same weight as guinea pigs. Oh. And little interesting fact here, baby, polar bears often starve. In fact, 70% do not live to their third birthday. Peter, in the wild, polar bears can live up to the age of five years, 25 years, or 50 years. Okay, I'm going to say 25 years. That's correct. Okay, I was just guessing on that one. Now, the adult male polar bear may grow 10 feet tall and weigh over 1,400 pounds. Females reach 7 feet and weigh 650 pounds. Well, that's a big size difference, bigger than I would have guessed. Yes, and how a large animal can produce a cub that weighs just over a pound. Yeah. Okay. True or false, the polar bear's fur is white. I'm going to say false. That is false. You're pretty tricky on these, but explain. Okay. Polar bear's fur is not white. Each hair is a clear, hollow tube. Oh, that's right. I remember about the hollow tube. The fur reflects light, which makes them look white. Yes. The hollow fur also traps the sun heat to help keep the polar bear warm. So in addition to their hollow fur, which allows them to conserve heat, what else keeps the polar bear warm? Oh, you're asking me now? Yep. This is like a fill-in-the-blank question, no more multiple choice? Uh, they, they must be fat or blunt, flat fat? They're well, that's true. They also have a four-inch layer of fat underneath their skin, and this prevents them from losing any of their heat. But in addition, this is so interesting, Peter, polar bears have black skin under their fur. Oh. And the black skin soaks up the sun's heat and helps them to stay warm. I did not know about that black skin. That's very interesting. Isn't that interesting? Uh -huh. Polar bears' primary food source is... 
Okay, I'm going to say... Yeah. reindeer, seabirds, or seals. Seals. All of the above, but primarily seals, is mm. correct. Yes. Polar bears have a pretty good sense of smell, and they can smell a seal one kilometer away. And what they do is they crouch near ice holes for hours to pounce on the seals as they come up. Yeah, you know, I know the circle of life and everything, but you see those pictures or the videos where they actually get the seal. It's a little tough to watch. Yeah, I don't, I don't watch that. But I read that less than 2% of polar bears' hunts are successful. Wow, that's, that's surprising to me. Yes, and because seals are their primary source of energy, they hoard the fat accumulating during the hunting season, which enables them to survive without food for up to nine months. Mm. True or false? Polar bears hibernate. I'm going to say that's true. They don't hibernate. Female polar bears will den with their young, and all polar bears may den for a short time to avoid bad weather. But not hibernate. That's right. Mm. Polar bears clean themselves by swimming by licking and using their paws to help them clean, much like a cat does, by rolling in the snow. Oh, I say all of them. Actually, swimming and rolling in the snow. Okay. After feeding, they'll usually wash by taking a swim or roll in the snow. How relaxing. True or false? Polar bears are excellent swimmers. Yes, that's true. The Latin name actually means sea bear. Oh, that's cute. Oh. Have you seen those videos, those underwater videos of the... Bears swimming, it's really, they really are good. Yeah. They just love it. Oh, those are adorable. And they, they can comfortably swim at around six miles per hour, and they can swim up to 100 miles at a time. Mm. And the front and back feet are shaped differently, and they will use their front feet to paddle and their hind feet to steer, much like oars and rudders. Interesting. And their paw pads have these rough surfaces which help polar bears from slipping on the ice. And Peter, another feature about their fur I forgot to mention. Polar bear's fur is oily and water repellent, so it allows them to shake dry after swimming. Okay. So there, we just learned a lot about the polar bears. And again, happy International Polar Bear Day, which is February 27th. And Laurie, did you see the story of the macaw from Brazil who had this damaged beak and what the scientists are doing for him? Yeah, I think I read something about that. This is the most amazing thing. You know about 3D printing. Yeah. And uh, 3D printing has is being used to help animals with like tortoises with damaged shells. You can make a 3D shell and glue it on there. Uh, well, this macaw was rescued and had a very, very damaged beak. A lot of it was just missing. And this group of engineers and veterinarians fashioned a beak made of titanium, right, using... 3D printing. Did you know you can print metal with a 3D printer? Well, that technology is now around. They sort of... That is the coolest thing. They utilize powdered titanium, and then they just layer upon layer, laser it, and it builds and builds and builds. And the shape and contour of the beak is determined by 3D modeling, of course. And then it's the cutest thing. They've got it screwed into the stub of the natural beak with these cute little titanium screws. And he's got this beautiful titanium beak. You know, the macaws need a beak to be able to exist. And so now they've uh, fashioned this. It's really the coolest thing. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals.